dinosaurs and man, two species separated by 65 million years of evolution, just been suddenly thrown back into the mix together. How can we possibly have the slightest idea of what to expect? Welcome back to the Neo Jurassic Podcast. My name is Bry, and I'm very excited to share this latest installment of the show with y'all. Prior to Jurassic Park's publication in 1989, the idea of resurrecting long extinct species was generally regarded as little more than science fiction fantasy. Since then, however, de-extinction has grown into a global conservation movement and has almost single-handedly produced enough clickbait headlines to keep dodgy online publications chugging along for years to come. At this point, you've probably heard of efforts to introduce a woolly mammoth Indian elephant hybrid into the taigas and tundras of Eurasia. That's kind of the most well-known of the de-extinction efforts, and certainly the one that veers closest to a Jurassic Park-type territory. However, as de-extinction technologies expand and improve, there are a great many species being eyed for resurrection, as well as genetic salvation. For instance, last December, a black-footed ferret named Elizabeth Ann, she's real cute, y'all, was engineered from the DNA of an animal that had died over 30 years prior. The genes retrieved with the creation of Elizabeth Ann will have a hugely positive impact on the extremely limited gene pool of the black-footed ferret. The organization that made Elizabeth Ann possible, Revive and Restore, has long been regarded as one of, if not the most serious groups pursuing de-extinction. Beyond de-extinction, Revive and Restore is striving towards a widespread acceptance and integration of biotechnologies into proactive conservation practices. Expanding the very endangered black-footed ferret's bottleneck gene pool with the cloning of a more distantly related specimen that died 30 years prior is one of these more proactive conservation initiatives that are utilizing biotechnology. Revive and Restore was founded in 2012 by conservationist and entrepreneur Ryan Phelan and legendary environmentalist, futurist, and writer Stuart Brand. By the way, Stuart Brand is the subject of a very exciting new documentary film, notably scored by Brian Eno, being released later this year. The film's title, We Are As Gods, is a reference to one of Brand's most popular and powerful quotes. We are as gods, and might as well get good at it. A sentiment that would be very much at home somewhere nestled in the Jurassic franchise, if I do say so myself. Now, as an individual utterly fascinated by de-extinction and conservation, you can imagine I've been following Revive and Restore for a little while now. I believe I'd first heard of the organization in an article about the potential de-extinction of the passenger pigeon many years ago, pretty close to the time the organization was founded. So when the last passenger pigeon passed away at the Cincinnati Zoo in 1914, the species had been extinct in the wild since the turn of the century, about 14 years prior. This is both terrifying and bonkers, as the passenger pigeon up until 100 years earlier was the single most abundant species of bird in North America and possibly even in the world. Scientists estimate the birds enjoyed a peak population around 5 billion before hunting and deforestation drove the species to extinction. The nomadic and communal nesting behavior and sheer humongous biomass of the birds is believed to have played a huge 
huge role in the evolution and health of the northeastern United States deciduous forests. It's for this reason, among others, that the de-extinction of the passenger pigeon has been one of Revive and Restore's most central focuses from the very beginning. And it's unlikely anyone has put more work towards this goal than Revive and Restore's lead scientist, Ben Novak. Since I first started thinking about this podcast, Ben Novak has easily been in my top 10 ideal guests. I mean, you know, as far as guests are concerned, you'd be hard pressed to find a better or more relevant one for this show than the real world's equivalent of a conservation-leaning Dr. Henry Wu. Although Ben initially agreed to an hour, very graciously I might add, our conversation ultimately ended up going for quite a bit longer. In fact, this episode could easily have been close to three hours. Uh, fortunately for you and any other listeners, one of the skill sets I've been attempting to strengthen as I continue this ongoing podcast project is editing. Somehow I managed to trim this episode's runtime to just above an hour and a half. And while it feels like an absolute triumph, a lot of really great content was sadly excised from the show. However, a much longer version of our conversation will be available on the Neo Jurassic Patreon. Speaking of which, please consider becoming a patron of the Neo-Jurassic Podcast. There will be much more exciting content like this and more headed to the Patreon-exclusive Neo-Jurassic feed over the coming weeks and months. And I have one more very sincere request before we dive into our interview. If you've been enjoying the podcast so far, and I hope that you have, and feel you could offer some kind words to share about it, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. Evidently, it helps significantly with new shows finding an audience, and the larger the audience we have, the more leverage I will then have when begging potential guests to contribute to this show. Major thank yous to Caw Caw Bird and Melcioga for sharing their own two reviews last week. Thank you, it means so much to me. So yeah, if you have five minutes, uh, please consider pausing this little episode and um, typing a little review in Apple Podcast reviews for the show. It would be very, very, very much appreciated. All right, our somewhat epic interview with the lead scientist at Revive and Restore, Dr. Ben Novak. Thank you so much for taking time out to uh, join me for this little project of mine. Yeah, no, I, I don't know. I, I, even if you had only like three viewers or something like that, the uh, j just the the Twitter mention of getting to to talk about Jurassic Park was was really tempting. So I just thought I could have a lot of fun. Well, I mean. You never know. I mean, for you, I would imagine you either never want to talk about it again or <laughs> you don't have the opportunity to really say what you want to say about it. Like uh, Definitely the really latter. Sure. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I've, I've never really had the opportunity to say what I want to say. I did I did get a, a, a brilliant chance um, when I was living in Australia uh, at a couple of events, um, one called Pint of Science and the other one, um, which they do worldwide, but uh, uh, the other one was was Australia specific, and I used the same talk twice, and it's 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 kind of funny <laughs> because uh, I I made these I, got, I I was getting so upset about the Jurassic Park phenomenon with my work uh -huh. that I made this set of slides, like I spent time making visual graphics to illustrate in a slide my 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 worst kind of 
pet peeve about Jurassic Park and people's people's bringing it up. And I made it, and I never had the opportunity to give it to any anybody. Just I just like made it because uh, I was it, upset, and it was on my desktop. And then I got invited. Is this, to do is this, this thing. still around? Because I'll I'll broadcast that for you, no problem. I'll just slap <laughs> it on there. <laughs> I, I I would be happy to share it. It was, but but I built a whole talk around it because when I was in Australia, they said, "Well, what would you like to talk about?" And and they're like, "We kind of thought it would be neat to tackle, you know, this from the science fiction angle." And I was like, "Yes," and I built a whole talk around. Uh, genetic engineering in the movies versus reality yeah and wove it into uh-huh. my own work and and i actually feel like it was the 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 thesis statement of it was the most important i've ever given but i haven't had a chance to really recycle that talk here in the states um but it was it was kind of an arc it went from it went from kind of silly we were we were supposed to drink while we did it too it was we were supposed to really it was like this funny yeah. kind of yeah. scientist drunk talking about stuff thing and uh and yeah, like the the arc was, this is what movies say genetic engineering is, and and then it was this is reality. And I spent a lot of time actually finding photographs of genetically engineered crops and things against like normal, uh-huh. <laughs> and and it was hard. It was hard, right? Because like because because BT corn is it's just corn. Like it, it has no visible difference yeah. between it and corn. So finding a photograph that is legitimately BT corn and one that is not, that's not just some stock photo of God knows what was a little tough. And then, right. and so I kind of brought the crowd in and I was, I was like, look, you guys are scared of genetic engineering, but there's, there's nothing here to see. And then, but then I flipped it and I was like, okay, when you look at regular corn versus BT corn infested by insects, then there's a huge difference. Mm. You've got regular corn being eaten away and gone. That's a farmer's livelihood gone. That's food gone from the planet. And you have BT corn being resistant to a pest. And I was like, this is the multi-billion dollar impact here. It's, it's invisible, right? These are, and and then I, but my favorite was, have you ever seen the movie splice? Oh yes. (laughs) I, I, (laughs) I found an image like it comes it, up often around here. Yeah, and so I, I threw splice. I actually watched uh, Dwayne Johnson's movie um, Ravage just for that that talk. Um, Rampage. It was my homework. Rampage. That's right. Rampage. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, and I, I I got the monster from well the the very sexy monster from Splice mm-hmm. up there, and and I, I put these silhouettes of all the animals they put together to make her right, and I was like. Okay, so this is what movies mm-hmm. tell you happens when you splice DNA. And then I found this artist's interpretation of like this very erotic woman with like weird naked chicken wings coming out of her back <laughs> and chicken feet and a little chicken beak. <laughs> yeah. And I said, so obviously uh-huh. when you yeah. splice chicken DNA and human DNA, you're going to get something like this. And, and then like it faded to like just a normal looking yeah. chicken. I was like, guys, chickens have human DNA. They make antibodies that are used in biomedicine. Um, and so it was like really bringing people down to reality. And then I introduced my pet peeve on Jurassic Park and why I actually feel – where I feel the actual issue at Jurassic Park is, is I think, I think when people throw Jurassic Park in my face, it signals not just a certain scientific illiteracy but a much deeper societal problem about our relationship with nature. Do you believe that Jurassic Park, the original film, was decidedly anti-science? in its morality no no i i don't think so 
Um, I think the, the original film Jurassic Park, um, it wasn't anti-science and I don't think it wasn't about science. It was, it was simply mm. about, um, it was just about being human. It was about humanity, right? It was, it's, it's like any kind yeah. of thriller, you know, you know, horror movies aren't about the monster. They're about how people react under pressure. Um, and, and mm-hmm. in a, in, in a difficult situation. Um, and yeah, because, you know, and I actually think when you tie in Jurassic world as the sequel of Jurassic park, to me, those movies signaled something really, really, uh, uh, interesting is that there's a scene in Jurassic park where, uh, Dr. Ellie Sattler is sitting down with Richard Hammond and they're eating up the ice cream and, and the perishables bef- because, you know, before they all go bad um, and melt all over the place. And you have two, two dichotomous worldviews there. You have Richard Hammond's very optimistic pragmatism, you know, also dealing with the trauma that his life's work has basically fallen apart in front of him at the expense of people's lives. And he's dealing with that trauma and his, mm-hmm. his road to catharsis is addressing the problem, finding it, fixing it, and starting over. And Ellie Sattler's yeah. response is actually very typical of a lot of people. It's the, it's the fear paralysis. It's the response. You know, she talks about the hubris and you didn't respect the power. And, you know, she goes into this tirade about how you should never have done this. This just wasn't right. And you can't do these things. And you go to Jurassic World 20-some years later, and both of their worldviews are played out in the same movie as being right in some way. In Jurassic World, Richard yeah. Hammond's view that you could actually find the problem, fix it, and start over it works, right? The park's been open for years. It's manifest, yeah. For, you know, yeah, and yeah. but there we see the actual worry in in Ellie Sattler's argument is that they made a genetically engineered, crazy, unpredictable hybrid monster to sell more tickets. And that's where they didn't respect the idea of what they were doing and didn't think ahead. Right. And, and of course, you know, they had that undertone of military nefarious bits, but, uh, but you know, it's it's like, it's like both playing out, but in reality, in reality, Richard Hammond is, is the one who's right. You know, in, in our line of work, the idea of using genetic engineering in agriculture or medicine or conservation, it falls into the Richard Hammond world that, you know, you can, you can do these things safely and effectively. Um, and unlike Richard Hammond hiring the wrong one guy for his <laughs> IT, um, you know, yeah. everyone working in this yeah. space is actually doing, doing it the right way. My my relationship with Ju- the Jurassic Park franchise does go way back, you know, with with most most dinosaur nerds um, of our age. I I don't remember the first time I saw Jurassic Park. I know it wasn't in theater. I was only six years old when it came out, um, but I remember going to the Lost World in theater, and I actually believe that the Lost World is is a is a good movie. I think it's a decent sequel to Jurassic Park. I don't think any of the other films are worth watching. Um, I'm happy to talk about why, um, but, uh, you know, so in preparation for Jurassic world, I know at some point I saw Jurassic park and, and I, you know, I was, I loved it. I was not scared. I, I, it was, to me, it was like dinosaurs could be real. 
we have to make this happen. Every year for, for Christmas, I, for Santa, Santa's wish list, it was, can I have a miniature robotic T-Rex from, from Jurassic Park? Like, I wanted a real one. And, uh, you know, Jack Horner, the, the paleontological consultant on those movies, was my childhood hero. I grew up in North Dakota, just a, a short drive away from his, his Museum of the Rockies um, collection where he was at. You know, I grew up just consuming this. And when I saw The Lost World, my actual childhood dreams completely changed course. First, I wanted to be a paleontologist, and I was ardently uh, going to be a paleontologist. Then I saw The Lost World, and I thought, wow, I want to be a movie director. <laughs> because I just thought it was so spectacular, you know, how they, how they brought everything to life. And and so for a very brief period, Jurassic the, the Jurassic Park franchise like knocked me into a completely different realm. Before I ended up coming back uh, to not paleontology, but I ended up you yeah. know struggling a bit. I was like, okay, I love extinct dinosaurs, I love paleontology, but I was really starting to fall in love with living species as well. And growing up where I did, I became very uh, very aware of conservation action in nature. Um, being near Theodore Roosevelt National Park, where uh, where bison, elk, and bighorn sheep were all extinct and had been reintroduced not long before I was born, um, and so I was I was exposed to a lot of that. And the landscape that shaped Theodore Roosevelt into a conservationist very much shaped me the same way. And uh, um, and so, but I was I was at a I was at a just at this this tension right like oh i want to work maybe in conservation with and i want to study living species but i love extinct stuff uh and then i learned about the tasmanian tiger or more appropriately thylacine uh genetic projects of of the era and at the same time the human genome pro genome project was wrapping up and and genetic engineering for for you know like glowing mice and things like that were making news stories mm. extra muscular mice like all these things were happening around the same time and my brain just went click that's it like i learned about a recently extinct species i delved into that i discovered dodos moas passenger pigeons carolina parakeets great ox honey creepers you know stellar sea cows you name it and I was so obsessed with it because you know, I, I bought Tim Flannery's book, uh, Gap in Nature. And, and it, was just, it was just incredible because all the species, you look through these historic extinctions and all of them are, they're both bizarre and familiar. They look like anything that's alive today, right? But they're extinct like dinosaurs. And so at the age of you know, 13 years old, with all these things happening in the world at once, I was like, that's the future. Like if we're going to reintroduce wolves in Yellowstone or bison mm. in Theodore Roosevelt National Park after they've been gone for decades, then and if we can get DNA from something extinct and we can engineer something that's alive, like it all just came together and I said I'm going to do de-extinction for conservation. I was I was 13 years old when I said that I did a a high school science fair project on that. And you know, from that point on, I really didn't think too much about Jurassic Park being related to anything. You know, it's, it's a great movie. It's a fun story. It wasn't until uh, amazingly, Revive and Restore was founded, and I learned about them, and I was given the opportunity to actually be one of the first people working on de-extinction that Jurassic Park came back into my life in full force. Because you know, then I was really astounded to find out that every time you talk about 
bringing back a woolly mammoth or a passenger pigeon that people are like, well, didn't you see Jurassic Park? And, and what, what blows me away is they're serious. Like they think somehow that a movie is, is, is like a resource for real life. Um, and, and I haven't always known how to react to that without, without yeah. being a little, little condescending because I just, I just don't know where it comes from. Well, that was part of my question about where where do you perceive the morality tale in in Jurassic Park in the, as a film? Because again, so many people view it as this like cautionary tale against the dangers of genetic engineering. Which, it, I mean, at least as the film is concerned, it's not really about that. If anything, the through through yeah. line has been capitalism overriding uh, various. Uh, structures yeah, i mean you know. clearly there's a tie there right i mean the anti-gmo movement is it's it's a weird one but at its core it's it's anti-corporation yeah i mean that's the main thing monsanto like, like, yeah. And, yeah i mean it's 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 about the world treating human beings and their livelihoods as just dollar signs which is just so pervasive mm. um and and i i t- i am totally on board with that you know i work for a non-profit uh, you know, I, I'm an adamant believer that in William Powell's quote, uh, William Powell is a scientist who's made the, uh, uh, with his team, has made the transgenic American chestnut tree the first genetically engineered organism for a conservation purpose, which has actually got immense public support um, in an anti-GMO world. And he has been, he has been, you know, beside himself since the beginning. He says, you know, if the first GMO had been golden rice and not soybeans. We wouldn't be in yeah. in the world we're in today. Yeah, and that's because you know you see it. I I, I absolutely agree. It's easy to distrust large corporations and their motives. Um, it's easy to look at Monsanto and go, oh, so they made a product as a plant that to grow it you have to buy their other product that is a spray. Like, oh, that's good business, and it makes you think like this is a bad di- thing. What they did has actually been so great for the world. You know, you can't blame them for being clever and making money off of it at the same time. Um, but but it's there, right? It's it's and Jurassic Park definitely helps seed that, right? So it's ooh, dinosaurs for a spectacular show, doing whatever you want on your own private island. I mean, it really hits all the triggers for us about, you know, billionaires and and profiteering and a complete, complete just absence of care for the natural environment. Um, that ends up in the loss of human life, right? I mean, it's, Jurassic Park does hit all of our our core uh, issues in 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 Western society, um, which is which I think is the reason why I'm still willing to talk about it because the people who ask, "Did you see Jurassic Park?" and and once you know, I can really process and be like, "Oh my God, don't be condescending. They're not being stupid." That's the issue to them. They're wondering. What is our hidden motive? Are we thinking about the environment? You know, is there some rich billionaire pulling our strings? You know, they're not think they're not thinking that passenger pigeons are legitimately going to go off and kill people and cause mayhem. They're worried about those underlying things, um, and you know, I'm I'm happy to tell them that none of that is is the reality. I can't believe that I'm not going to see the next one. I'm not going to. It's not going to be worth it. Because the whole premise where they set it up, like, oh, they let the dinosaurs go. 
that is what irks me the most because that's that's that comes back to the Jurassic Park issue with my work, right? So people go, "Have you seen Jurassic Park?" I actually had a, a child ask me once. They're, they're like, "What if a mammoth steps on someone?" And I was like, "I was like, okay, <laughs> we need to heal this disconnect with our imaginations." I said, "One, yes, a mammoth could step on someone." They're not big enough to like step on top of them. They'd have to knock them over and step on them. And yeah, elephants are large, dangerous animals. But woolly mammoths are, and this is the other thing, woolly mammoths are not enormous. Like they are the same size as Asian elephants. They are smaller than African elephants. I can't believe people don't understand that. Um, it's in every book ever written on mammoths. Uh, uh, and what, so anyway, um, she was, you know, but she was legitimately scared because, you know, she's been growing up in a world where things like Jurassic Park, Rampage, et cetera, they all peddle this idea. And this is, this is where, this is my main thesis with the Jurassic Park franchise. That's an issue where it intersects with my work. All these movies, um, the day after tomorrow, um, you know, uh, uh, what is it? The core, you know, you go through all these science fiction movies where the world is going to end or there's some natural phenomenon destroying mankind. It's all about the central idea that human <clears throat> beings are tampering and messing with nature so much that nature is going to somehow rise up and come back and, and, and have vengeance upon us. And it, and it peddles this idea that nature is more powerful than us. And that's absolutely true mm. about climate change, right? I mean, like, yeah. no one can go out and control a weather pattern. But when it comes to natural environments and wildlife, the thing that breaks my heart about human beings growing up in an urban disconnected world where they're not familiar with nature is that they would ever believe that nature is dangerous because the threat has always been the other way around. When you look at human yeah. be humanity's history with wildlife and natural environments, we are we are the rampage. We are the Jurassic Park dinosaurs. We are the monsters. It's it's the world's largest animals, African elephants, blue whales have been killed by people for thousands of years with spearheads 2 inches long. And we live in a world where we have atom bombs and and automatic shotguns, <laughs> you know, and and nitro six hundreds. You know, it's it's yeah. we don't live in a world where there's any organism out there that is a threat to us. And yes, some people get attacked by sharks every once in a while. People do get attacked by bears. When it's one person against a wild organism, and the person doesn't have a firearm, most likely the the wild animal is going to win, but that's not the same as that animal against humans. Like five, six people against a grizzly bear. The grizzly bear is going to back down. It's, 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 we literally tip the scales with just a tiny amount of effort. And, uh, and that's, I think the, the, the danger of Jurassic Park as a franchise is the idea that these animals are so invincible and, and we are so, so, uh, uh, unprepared or or susceptible to them and that's why jurassic park fallen kingdom really just just hit me right through the chest because at the end they release 
these animals into the world and oh no, what are they going to do? And that's just it. What are they going to do? T-Rex is one, one rifle shot away from being a done story. None of those animals yeah. could hurt anyone, particularly in a rural setting where people actually have firearms, like where I'm from. You know, there was a guy back in the, I can't remember his name, guy back in the 50s, 60s, that went around the world hunting all the world's largest big game with a 275 rifle just to prove you could do it. Like he shot African elephants and took them down with a 275. That's a small rifle. T-Rex, and this is, this is where anatomy and paleontologists can come in. African bull elephants yeah. and T-Rex are the same height at the hips. They have the same size chest. Elephants being more narrow because T-Rex is more barrel-shaped. You look at those two animals' barrel, skeletons, yeah. and an elephant's <laughs> ribs are broad. It has a huge shoulder blade. Like it is, it is almost an armored animal compared to the T-Rex, which has these skinny ribs separated eight to you know seven mm-hmm. inches apart. Skinny little shoulder blade. They probably have similar sized hearts. And if I am a big safari hunter wanting to take down a giant animal, T-Rex is the perfect target. He's got a giant exposed heart, most likely thin skin, just easy to take down. One rifle, one decent rifle would have completely eliminated the entire plot of Jurassic Park, but so would uh, sensible science. Well. Right, of course. There would be nothing, <laughs> you know. But that's that's my thing. Moving forward, the the um, the film's agenda is to use these dinosaurs as a metaphor for our current relationship with animals. And so the animals are extremely vulnerable um, in North America, as seen at the end of Fallen Kingdom. They're, they're causing far less havoc than they are uh, an issue of concern and and uh, there are organizations around them trying to defend them and all this other stuff. I don't know exactly how it's going to be handled, but that's kind of the trajectory that they're going for it, what they're ang- angling for. Did you see Battle at Big Rock, the short film that happened? I, I okay. did not. Um, but, you know, that's, that's another weird thing. Of, like, even if the Jurassic Park series wants to try and, like, confront those like that was you know that was the thing about fallen kingdom to me is we have all these like these groups fighting for the rights of these dinosaurs and it's like and and i wouldn't i don't doubt that groups like that would pop up in a real world if this were the case but but you know it's it's like we have we have like tons of species that belong in the world that need help and i just i just couldn't believe and this was this was personally insulting that these new movies came into being after de-extinction projects became a real yeah. thing in the world. And it's not referenced like at all in this reality. Um, and it would have been so easy to kind of just interject a few lines that one would have made our lives a lot easier, but two could have added a lot of rich dynamic, uh, you know, uh, yeah. avenues for them. Just like, you know, just having even one scientist in there who works in our space going, like, oh, why don't you corporations give out your 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 uh, IP, you know, your IP, so we can we can do the same thing for nature, right, or like right. you know, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. recognizing that maybe there was someone working for twenty years trying to recreate a dodo or totally. something like that, yeah. or maybe they could have thrown in Sergei Zimov's Pleistocene Park and been like, 
you know, just like an interview on TV, like, oh, you know, those things are spectacles. Here we've done this to help the world. Just like little things to show like, okay, there, there's a reality where this has no longer been just animals on a park, but we live in a reality where we're talking about this for real world uses. And it could have added a lot of layers to that. And it's just kind of, it was kind of crazy to think they started that in a world where George Church has a real mammoth project yeah, and just ignored that that this could be anywhere else in a world where there are people sequencing genomes from extinct species and they don't even reference any of that either. And, you know, we we had the oldest DNA sequence just a few weeks ago. It was, it was published, right? A a million year old DNA. Um, And, you know, it's predicted that DNA could maybe make it to about 1.5 million years under ideal conditions. So, I mean, the the reality is, is we're not going to be getting DNA from anything older and all the claims of DNA mm-hmm. or proteins or anything from stuff that's older has all been, even though some of those people that publish that are fight tooth and nail that it was real and is real, it's it's all false positives from bacterial cross contamination. I worked stuff. with yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I worked. I worked literally in that field of looking for dinosaur proteins, and it's it's not real. I yeah. uh, you know it, it wasn't yeah. even worth publishing that it wasn't real. Um, and yeah, and so. You know, we really are looking at de-extinction just in, th- you know, the last 100,000 years or so, which is a nice time frame because everything that lived in the last 100,000 years co-evolved and lived with everything that's alive today. Um, you know, there's a place in nature today for everything from the past, from the Pleistocene. Um, and people are proving that already around the world, right? So, like, people ask us, they're like, oh, well, the mammoth's been gone a long time. Can it go back in na- to nature? Well, in Spain in 2017, they reintroduced bison, and bison have been gone from Spain for 15,000 years. You know, and they didn't have to engineer anything to do that. They just brought them back in. Um, in in you know, so so these types of bars, like going back to the Pleistocene, to think of how we confront the challenges we have now, is not absurd. It's actually something that's already happening in our world. Um, the genetic engineering bits, you know, that come in are just allowing us to do it with a much larger, uh, uh, menu of species because there are no elephants that could live in Siberia today. There are no pigeons in the world that will give us the same role that the passenger pigeon had. Um, there are extinct species that are so unique that, that there's just no way unless we actually try to recreate them. Um, so yeah, so but if you know for people wanting to know what programs are active right now, what the state of the technology is, in 2018 I published an open uh, source paper in the journal Genes. Uh, if you just Google Ben Novak genes de-extinction, it is currently the only scientific paper on de-extinction written by someone who works in de-extinction. Um, and it summarizes, uh, basically everything someone would want to know. It's, it's a good read. It's a big read. It's 11,000 words, but it was confronting, uh, five years of other publications, uh, up until that point, a philosopher or other scientist, someone pontificating about either the, the, the dangers or promises of de-extinction or the debate had been averaging publishing a paper like that once a month. A peer-reviewed yeah. paper every month for five years, and it's still going like that. And and so at that point, there was just so much literature to confront and so much public uh, kind of discourse to confront. So in, I tried in eleven thousand words to 
to spell out what we're doing, why we're doing it, what the historical context is. Um, uh, I even invented a new term and a new type of extinction uh, because biotechnology confronts and challenges us in these ways and, mm. and then went through what the active programs are and, and people's concerns, the four like big concerns that people keep bringing up, you know, is this a waste of money or a waste of time? Will these things survive? Like all that stuff is baked into that paper. The only thing not in the paper is a full treatment of animal welfare concerns, but that's because that's a much bigger topic can't just make that into two paragraphs into a into a paper um so for anybody that wants to know more about animal welfare and how de-extinction is working they can actually get on ResearchGate or email me personally i will send them a book chapter that i wrote um otherwise you've got to spend 200 dollars on a on a on a book i'll send the proof <laughs> version because i wrote an entire book chapter that was published i think in 2020 on animal welfare and biotechnology for de-extinction. So the Pleistocene rewilding is is a, obviously something that comes up constantly. Um, how are people in in rewilding efforts and in de-extinction efforts reconciling the realities, the violent seismic shifts that climate change is going to be wrecking across the globe over the past over the next sixty hundred years? How are we reconciling those efforts um, in 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 returning certain ecosystems to a baseline that won't even be functional or possible in as few as like 20 to 30 years? Well, so the, the problematic word in, in that question is baseline. Yeah. And, and so there, you know, there is no baseline. Um, and, and, and people need to actually just remove that from, from their brain entirely. The idea of baselines in nature, um, mm. So, you know, as I said, like bison were reintroduced after being gone for 15,000 years. So, well, why were bison gone in Spain for 15,000 years? It's not the climate. It was human yeah. beings. Um, bison lived in Europe and Spain through huge glacial, you know, glacial, glacial periods, interglacials, warm, hot, cold, whatever. Most species alive today have been through completely different types of climate regimes. Mm. The, the you won't find a lot published on this if at, at at all, but the real threat of climate change is is not that the climate's changing quickly. Um, that is a difficult thing for many species, particularly sedentary ones, coral reefs. Um, you know, it's a very big issue. But for most terrestrial species and even a lot of uh, marine species, climate change is not the threat. The threat is the fact that we have taken the world and 75% of its land we have developed to our purposes. And we've created islands of habitat for, um, for wildlife to exist in now where they used to have continuous landscape. And so when you think of the climate getting warmer, and in a national park, everything changing and species choking off to death because the climate's changing, that's all because they can't leave. Right. And, and so, the, you know, when people are trying to restore ecosystems, yeah, it's, it can be a little, in, in today's climate change crisis, it can be a little like, oh, well, yeah, what do you do in 10 years when the area we've put them is now, now can't hold them? 
well, you know, the sad thing is you just move them again, right? And maybe there's nowhere to move them to. But I think, you know, people do this hoping that we can actually keep environments viable enough to the point where people actually get their act together and we create corridors and ways of spe for species to move. But the, the, the one thing that just has to happen, it's not de-extinction or gene editing, genetic rescue or anything. It's not breeding animals in zoos or biobanks and whatnot, like all those things we need to do. But the one thing that absolutely has to happen on this planet is we need to stop using land to grow crops. Just that's it. That's the one problem. Uh, crops and livestock or just crops? Well, crops are crops are the violator in that scenario. Um, yeah. crops that we also we grow to feed livestock, but the you know pigs, chicken, those are feed-fed animals. Um, so there's there is a certain amount of land that's used to feed those. However, what a lot of people don't understand about the meat industry, and, and this is where I, I, none of the science for going vegetarian holds up. It just doesn't. The reality of the meat industry is that it's reject parts of plants that go into feeding animals. There's very mm. little land used <clears throat> just to support animal use. Now, when it comes to beef, uh, the majority of that is, is grazed on open land, and that can actually be done in a manner to be compatible with natural species. Um, that's the thing yeah. is cattle are grazing natural grasses, whereas a crop is mm -hmm. turning the land over and making a monoculture that destroys yeah. the, the, the microbiota, just, just obliterates everything into this new state, which some wildlife use very well, and a lot of other wildlife mm -hmm. don't. Um, and it's always it's always inconsistent. It's either stubble or a crop, or you know, it's it's just, and it's and we use so much of it. You know, it's it's so much, so much land, and the roads. You know, even our, but it's not just that. You know, our roads, a lot of other things, urban development and roads could all be done differently. But if we could just, if we could grow the food we need, the plant food we need on one percent of the land we use today, we would completely not only revolutionize what we could be doing for wildlife conservation, but we would virtually stop climate change. People don't understand that either. It's, mm. we keep thinking about cars, et cetera. <laughs> and it's, we turned the world's grasslands, which were the most important ecosystem for climate buffering. And we turned them into environments that create giant amounts of atmospheric carbon through the way through the fossil fuels they burn to create them down to the fact that every year we're turning up parts of plants and letting them rot nothing is being sequestered because it's not living and integrating long enough there and you know and we're clearing forests to create more of that we're just we're we're literally creating a nightmare so uh, grasslands are a higher buffer than forests Grasslands are a higher buffer than forests, really. By about okay. a factor of ten, yeah. It's it's immense. Grasslands. Yeah, wow, that's incredible. The only ones that are better yeah. than grasslands are are things like peat bogs, um, you know, which are not. Yeah. We're never hugely uh, vast landscapes. You know, grasslands, forests are the two kind of major expansive landscapes in the world that are dominant, other than deserts, um, and. 
and grasslands are are hugely hugely more carbon significant than forests and they are the habitat that we've decimated the most in north america we have two percent of our original grasslands but we have more than 50 percent of our forest cover wow so when you it's not even it's not even a comparison when you think of the conservation uh yeah uh significance there Given that we were just talking about the effects of climate change, what has been your experience in the conversations around um, engineering more uh, resilient versions and iterations of existing species that can tolerate ocean, ocean acidification and climate change and all these other things? Because I'm very curious about what that field and that emerging thing looks like from your perspective. Well, you know, it's, it's something that we absolutely have to be doing because no one's no one's going to get their act together and revolutionize agriculture as well as build atmospheric scrubbers and you know we at this point we absolutely need to we need to do all those things we need high technology to get carbon out of the atmosphere and use it for something else um you know it, it, we, we don't even have to switch to electric cars and things like that we just have to change our power grid like we have to get off of coal and natural mm. gas we have to stop burning things for electricity and and we have to change agriculture the woolly mammoth project is so significant to this question because converting the tundra back to grasslands would be the biggest thing we could do for long-term climate change i mean it's it's the most expansive land area but in the oceans, you know, the oceans have a huge carbon cycle going on in them, and, and we're losing a lot of life in oceans. We absolutely need to be doing stuff there. And in the oceans, that's probably where the genetic engineering solutions are the most important to start now, because we can't do all those other things fast enough to save the species that we're losing. And the species that we're losing are species that play an important role in the things that we need long term. So corals, absolutely, you know, we need to, there's all kinds of people thinking about how to do that. But this is the problem is no one right now can really tell you a gene or a variant of a gene that's going to make a species more climate mm. resilient. Um, we, we are at the precipice right. of needing to discover a lot more about genetics and epigenetics. And, you know, we have the ability, we now have the ability with CRISPR-Cas9 and other gene editing technologies to harness the, that information and use it, but we don't have the information at hand. So, so, right. so, you know, one thing Revive and Restore is doing is trying to help make that information happen. So we have something called the Advanced Coral Toolkit. Um, and, and this brings me to something else, of course. You know, we got on talking about Jurassic Park, but Revive and Restore, we started with the passenger pigeon. And, and, and we recognize that all the steps that have to happen to get to a passenger pigeon are, are building tools that could immediately be used to help other species alive today. And, we're, and over the last few years, we've finally been able to proliferate into enough projects that you know over 90% of what we're doing now is in the endangered species and environment space versus de-extinction which is kind of sad to me because it's actually been very difficult to get any money for de-extinction. Our de-extinction programs have, have a, a, a thin scraping of our funding at the bottom of our barrel. Um, but we've been able to get a, a lot of funding for things like our advanced coral toolkit in which what we're doing is we have about, there's about six projects published on our webpage. There's several more that have been signed in and on the way it's a, 
it's a mul it's it's a large assembly of teams from around the world all working on different components of making corals um easier to study really because we don't even have the tools we need to be able to discover what makes a heat resistant coral so some of these projects are right using pharmaceutical drugs as a model system to figure out can you can you understand gene expression in a coral using a drug system versus having to subject it to natural conditions and and um so can we make stem cells from corals so we can create different tissues organoid chips or 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 gametes can we cryopreserve nano fragments of coral so we have backups in our biobanks that we can regrow out later um you know it's a whole yeah. host of technologies that we're we're supporting the development of even technologies that already exist things like uh, uh inducible spawning like the biggest issue for corals is if you want to create embryos to study you have to go out the one 12 hour period of the year where they breed and spawn be in the ocean as they're doing it and see it happen and then go collect sperm and eggs to make embryos and bring back to your lab um that's a huge huge challenge <laughs> um and it means you can only work once a yeah. year on those types of questions whereas people keep coral in their homes right saltwater aquariums people have coral all over the world you can can you can do a certain regime of lighting and temperature and things with those corals in captivity that will make them spawn at command and a laboratory figured that out we have a program that's helping to just spread that knowledge and that training so that labs around the world can now start doing science all year round rather than seasonally because we really just need to accelerate discovery in this space um so that we can actually come up with applications and our advanced coral toolkit is is one of the only uh, uh, projects in the world that's spearheading all those different types of approaches to make as many methods as possible. And if it works, that is so cool. That is so right. You know, if we build that knowledge up the right way, I mean, I think you know, someone once asked me a while ago. They said, "How would you feel if you went into a national park and everything you saw was genetically engineered?" And I said, "I'd feel really amazing if I was seeing it all." Because seeing a national park or a marine area full of life versus, de uh, you know, devoid of it. Like that's like, I think people think they're asking that question about the genetic engineering part. And it's like, we're, we're yeah. beyond that point, guys. We are at a point where it's like, yeah. you can choose genetically engineered wildlife or you can choose extinction. And that's yeah. your choice. And And it's, for a lot of species, that's that's the grim reality. For a lot of other species, it comes down to those other things I talked about, right? Changing agriculture, right. changing energy, doing more of our standard types of uh, conservation efforts by rewilding, reintroductions. You know, not everything has to be genetically engineered to survive, but a lot of things need those right. types of solutions now because of what we've done to the world. And time is just against them to adapt. Um, so I figured we haven't actually really talked much about Revive and Restore and how it began and what its agenda is and what kind of projects it's been undertaking. So um, if you'd like to fill us in on that, I would love to hear about it. Yeah. Um, well, for those unfamiliar with Revive and Restore, which is you know probably a lot of the world, um, 
uh, Revive and Restore was formed by uh, Ryan Phelan and Stuart Brand in 2012 around the idea of de-extinction. I mean, it, it started off with the Passenger Pigeon Project, and that's where I got brought in uh, to, to lead that project. But, you know, from the very start, uh, uh, as I you know, had mentioned earlier, the idea of de-extinction being a moonshot for biotechnologies and conservation was about the idea of ecosystems and that these new tools could be developed and then, you know, like, du- like literally duct tape in the moon program, right? I mean, things would be invented, Velcro, et cetera, that would end up revolutionizing yeah. other stuff. We felt every step of the way from sequencing genomes to get more, better information, doing the gene editing, you know, the reproductive technologies, every step was a new tool for conservation of living species. And, um, you know, early on, George Church, uh, you know, brought his Woolly Mammoth project under our umbrella. Um, George was actually the inspiration behind what created Revive and Restore. Uh, Ryan Phelan worked on one of the boards of one of George's projects. And so Stuart and Ryan had known him. And when they were visiting, uh, visiting him, he had shown them some of his new gene editing uh technology he was developing at the time and he said you know i think we're at a stage where we could seriously start thinking that you know about recreating extinct species and and you know that just lit up stuart brand's imagination and he had grown up you know hearing stories from his mother about uh, uh passenger pigeons and so he um you know he was tied into that bit of americana especially being from uh, uh michigan um where some of the last large flocks had been. So, you know, one thing led to another and then kind of, you know, brought George back in, you know, it's, it's kind of been this constant catalytic cycle of positive feedback. Um, and then in 2013, you know, 2012, we had a, a meeting at National Geographic about the ideas of de-extinction. And in 2013, we had TEDx de-extinction where we had all these talks and I had a bad hair day and, <laughs> What was really great about those TEDx de-extinction talks was even though a lot of people for years years have only seen us as the de-extinction people, if you go back to TEDx de-extinction, baked into it is the idea of biotechnologies and interventions for conservation. One of the talks is by Oliver Ryder about biobanking. One of the talks is about using cloning for endangered species. One of them is about using reproductive technologies to save endangered birds. Another one is about the transgenic American chestnut tree. Another is about how sequencing genomes can revolutionize how we save species like the California condor. I mean, everything that Revive and Restore has flourished into over the years was was really in that first event. And what happened, which was really incredible and has changed my life and, and Revive and Restore, um, was Seth Willie, a young deputy director for Fish and Wildlife Service in the Mountain Prairie region, saw our TEDx de-extinction talks, emails Ryan out of the blue and goes, you know, I've got this out-of-the-box idea. If you can use, you know, if you can even talk about bringing back woolly mammoths, there has to be something you can do for the black-footed ferret. And, you know, I had known very little about black-footed ferrets. Um, Even though I had grown up in an area they once lived, uh, but, you know, they'd been gone from there my entire life. So um, 
we all got a crash course in the history of the black-footed ferret. And it is this history shared by many other species that, you know, they, they got pushed to the brink of extinction where there was only one population left in the world. And conservationists, rather than watch them go extinct in front of their eyes, chose to intervene despite the controversy and scooped up the last black-footed ferrets, you know, just praying they could learn how to breed them and work with them in captivity and saved that species from extinction. And you fast forward nearly 35 years and they have been hugely successful reintroducing black-footed ferrets to over 30 locations throughout the country, um, you know, protecting habitat and areas for them to go live. Um, and they've gotten very good at working with them in captivity, but the program, you know, one thing about being successful is it starts to reveal the real challenges. Like once you overcome a first few, then the big ones start to surface and become apparent. And some of the real challenges this species faces long-term are its gene pool. All living black-footed ferrets today are descended from seven individuals. And the second is sylvatic plague. Um, this disease on the landscape that was brought from Asia in the 1800s wipes out their prey, the prairie dog, as well as wipes out black-footed ferrets. They have no resistance to it at all. They never evolved with this disease. Um, so, you know, it's, it's pretty poignant right now as we, we're still going through a, a pandemic for a novel virus to be thinking of the fact that wildlife has been putting up with these problems because of human beings for 500 years now, as we have brought new diseases to new areas <laughs> at every turn. And it has literally obliterated species to extinction. Yeah. Um, you know, in this case, this species was brought into captivity where it was safe and they've actually developed a vaccine. But, you know, the, the issues this species faces, a lot of people have actually talked about habitat, especially with our recent announcement, which we'll get to. But they talk about habitat. And the thing is, you know, they've, they've, they've protected some habitat. There is a future for this species. It would be much better if we addressed the issues of agriculture like I talked about. But there is a future for this species on the landscape if we can control plague. And plague is the big issue. But trying to come up with a solution for plague is going to take time. And in the meantime, this is still a species that has an incredibly small gene pool. So when we were brought on, you know, we were trying to think of what can we do now to help this species out with its genetic diversity. And Oliver Ryder at the San Diego uh, uh, Zoo Oh, they've rebranded. I'm sorry. They, they are no longer San Diego Zoo Global. They are San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. Oh, yeah. They, they... Um, their frozen zoo, uh, uh, Oliver Ryder, you know, he had, he'd actually been one of the speakers. He worked with us at TEDx Extinction, And so we immediately reached out to him and said, Oliver, we've been approached about black-footed ferrets. And it turns out Oliver has been involved in black-footed ferret programs since it started. Um, and he met one of the wow. early veterinarians in Wyoming when they captured the last wild ferrets. And he said, Oh, send us some tissue, you know, let's bank that for the future. And the guy, apparently Tom Thorne was his name. He didn't seem like he didn't give Oliver a resounding yes. But several months later in 1985, Oliver got a box from Wyoming with black footed ferret skin samples and started, you know, storing that tissue away 
And fast forward nearly 30 years when we, you know, uh, uh, when we started getting involved in this project and here were these two cell lines in the San Diego frozen zoo that were not from those original seven ferrets. They have no living descendants and everyone in the program was interested. They were like, well, you know, this is the, this could be the potential to bring in founder number eight and nine, you know, which is for only, yeah, you know, which doesn't seem like much for her for only having seven going up to eight and nine is yeah. pretty big. Um, and, but no one really knew they're like, well, these were captured in the same place. You know, what if they're just like the sister of one of the ones that we did breed, you know, like we, we don't know what their value would be. So we decided to take the, the revive and restore approach, right? Like the foundation of these technologies is your knowledge. It's knowing the genetics, then it's building from that. So we raised some money and we sequenced the genomes of those historic cell lines and we compared them to ferrets that were alive at the time, which are separated by 20 generations of captive breeding, as well as the fact that they are, they're, they're unrelated to begin with from the founders. So we looked at it and this project has actually grown a lot. That was, that was, that was determined. They were unrelated. Well, well it wasn't necessarily to determine if they were unrelated because they are all related to a degree, but from the same population, but it was really to look at how much uniqueness can they bring in? What would be, what would be the value of bringing them in? Because maybe they did just look a lot like any other ferret, right? At a genetic level. Um, But they did not. Uh, They, these historic samples have a significant amount of unique genetic variation that's been lost to living generations. So that was what really prompted the idea of using cloning technology to re to bring one of these historic ferrets bloodlines back into the world. Um, and cloning is something that the fish and wildlife service has never done before. Um, it's, it's something that in the world of conservation up until that point, you know, when we were talking about this in 2014, 2015 had been only done for proof of concept as a research tool. Uh, and, but you know, but it's an old technology and it's very established. It's commercialized. People are cloning livestock every week around the world of Mm -hmm. a dozen different types of species. And so we felt, you know, there was something there, let's pursue it. And so we developed proposals and, you know, we had, we were having one or two annual meetings with the, 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 the recovery team with all their different stakeholders. And, um, we finally ended up talking with Viagen Pets and Equine, uh, a major B premier cloning company in the world, really. Um, and, and they were very interested, like they're like getting involved in wildlife and conservation. Yeah, let's, let's do it. Um, they had never cloned ferrets before, which is where we actually got in touch with John Engelhart, uh, the guy who led the lab that actually developed cloning and domestic ferrets for the first time. And we assembled meetings of 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 scientists you know we we marta gomez who is one of the people responsible for the largest conservation research cloning efforts in history with wild cats at the audubon zoo uh we were very privileged to be able to get her to consult and work on developing this program with us um over seven and a half years from when seth willie got in touch with us through email 
to the news that we had actually cloned one of these historic cell lines of ferrets. Uh, you know, over 200 people had some small or big part in that. And we had to get a, a yeah. uh, Fish and Wildlife Service permit, like federal permit to, be, to start doing this research. There's a first permit of its kind ever for this type of research. I mean, this was just one milestone after another. And in 2020, we were doing these early research trials with, um, with just a regular black-footed ferret, not a historic important one. And it was looking really promising. And we were using domestic ferrets as the surrogate mothers and egg cell donors for many important reasons. Um, and it was all looking promising. And Pete Gober, the, the lead coordinator of Fish and Wildlife Service's uh, black-footed ferret recovery team, you know, after seeing the initial results and talking it through with this entire group that has been meeting for years said, let's do this. You know, I think we're at a point where we've got enough knowledge. We know there is a strong genetic value. This historic cell line from Willa, um, stud book number 10 out of nearly 10,000 now, um, has as much as three times more ge unique genetic variation than ferrets alive today. And it's just, it's just, wow. you compare the genomes, it's there. And, and so he said, let's do it. You know, this is potentially founder number eight. It looks like it's going to work. And Viagen was ready to go and we did it. And around Halloween, the embryos were created, transferred to the mothers. In the middle of their pregnancy, they were shipped from Viagen to the National Blackfooted Ferret Center for birth, where the people know how to give birth to blackfooted ferrets and raise them. And on December 10th, Elizabeth Ann, the world's first clone blackfooted ferret, a genetic twin of Willa, who lived and died 30, nearly 33 years before she before Elizabeth Ann was born, came into the world. And it, it you know, it was just absolutely astonishing and incredible and we were not allowed to tell the world about it right away <laughs> it's a government project so there's layers <laughs> of, of of agency to go through um and you know but we were all kind of we were kind of waiting is she going to make it through the first week is she going to make it through the first 30 days and because that's for any ferret naturally born or not that's that's the time period where they could be cannibalized by their parents or their parents could just yeah. not learn how yeah. you know just not feed them um their siblings yeah. could eat them uh -huh. there's there's a lot of things that can go wrong and about like yeah. about five-ish percent of all black-footed ferrets born die in their first 30 days um and so we were waiting and it went and then she made it to 30 days old and and eventually she opened up her eyes and she's strong she's healthy um and there's a lot more to the story but but uh it, it, you know it's it's revive and restore's first project where a living breathing animal you know came out of years of work amazingly though it wasn't the first one because even this is this is where the story gets kind of confusing but a lot of fun anyway <laughs> When we met with Viagen to talk about cloning black-footed ferrets in 2017, you know, we had a, you know, we had a realistic conversation. We're like, you know, the world doesn't really trust cloning. There's a lot of misconceptions about it. Agriculture has embraced it. They see its value, but the broader public, there, you know, there's a lot of mm -hmm. a lot of misinformation surrounding this. And 
for 20 years, nearly 20 years, people in conservation had been doing cloning research, and everyone had been saying the same thing. It's not ready. Cloning is not ready to be used in conservation. And we were like, we solidly disagree. We need to show the world <laughs> why that's not true, right? Why cloning is ready for prime time. And we thought, we can't just make one ferret and expect the world to change its mind. We need to we need to go out and find more projects where cloning could bring in value. And we we basically in February 2017, we were sitting down with the president of Viagen and said, you guys clone, you know, you and your sister company Transova, you guys clone horses, cattle, sheep, goats, pigs, dogs, cats. Oddly enough, for a client, they have cloned whitetail deer and mule deer. And in the last couple of years, they've actually cloned a bighorn sheep. Um, but at that time, it had just been the, the eight species. And, and, um, and we said, there's got to be some endangered relatives of those species that you guys could clone that we could end up, you know, uh, uh, doing something promising and significant. So we got a hold of Oliver Ryder again um, because he is our, you know, he's such an important partner. Um, and we said, do you have cells in the frozen zoo from any species that are endangered related to these domestic species? And we're like, you know what, just to make your life more difficult, let's see if they're 20 or 30 years old. We want to go back in time. We don't want to just clone like a Bantang cow or, or a Syrian wild ass that you guys froze down last May. We want to go back in time yeah. <laughs> and get something that, that has genetic diversity that's been lost, right? Something that basically mirrored everything we were looking at in black-footed ferrets. And right. Yeah. You know, Ryan was skeptical. She's like, oh, God, that's that's a that's asking a lot. And Oliver sent back a list of eight species and said, We have cells from 20, 30, or 40 years ago from all of these. And and we were like, okay. And up to the top of the list floated the Shavalsky's horse, which has, you know, an almost identical history to the black-footed oh, ferret. Yeah. It went extinct into the it went extinct in the wild in the 1960s. Captive breeding has saved them from extinction, has reintroduced them to the wild. Um, there are 2,000 Shavalsky's uh, horses alive today that are all descended from several of 12 original wild horses that go back to the early 1900s. Um, it's a little more complex than that, but that's the simplified version. And, and they know that they've got some genetic diversity issues from some studies they've done. And and both mm. these species are so pivotal for us because they represent something to us that is a paradigm shift, a big game changer for thinking in conservation. And this isn't just conservation. In the world, we tend to be reactive, right? We're only really concerned about climate change now because we're 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 feeling the repercussions of it. Like people were sounding the alarm about climate right. change fifty years ago. Yeah. And no yeah. one did. <laughs> no one in leadership did anything about it. Imagine the world we'd be in today. Yeah. If 50 years ago the world had gone, we need a Paris agreement. We need to mobilize. If uh, uh, whatever Elon Musk was alive back then said, oh, let's fund atmospheric scrubbers. We are a society that most often gets to the point where a problem erupts. And then we go, oh, we need to figure out how to fix this. We are reactive. Um, and we are oftentimes never prepared. And cloning 
these cloning projects we ch we went after we wanted to try and not only show that cloning was ready to help conservation but could be used in a completely different under a different paradigm and that's the paradigm of being prepared and proactive because the black-footed ferret and the Shavalsky's horse are two species that are that already have an amazing recovery infrastructure. They are species that are in no danger of going extinct mm -hmm. as long as there is funding for the captive breeding and conservation. They will be taken care of by conservation. But their long-term viability is reliant on us if we can't really help them with every challenge they have. And one of those is genetic diversity. We know that. We know they have very limited genetic diversity. So rather than wait until they show severe signs of inbreeding, like infertility and, and, and deformities, rather than wait to that point and then go, oh, we need some new blood in this herd, why not get out ahead of it and make sure that never happens? Now, this is something people in agriculture do, right? Like they don't let their animals inbreed to the point where they're, they're goofy. They bring in right. from yeah. a different herd and they go, okay, we're <laughs> going to keep this going. So... The Shavalsky's horse project literally came out of the black-footed ferret program, but it went so much faster for several reasons. One is, uh, uh, rather than a genomic analysis, they uh, did a theoretical pedigree analysis to identify individuals that they could use. Uh, Some genomics had already been done in yeah. 2015, showing, of course, there was a need. Um, but the other thing is, there there really are no cell lines from from an animal outside of the breeding program. So there wasn't the idea of a new founder there, but there was the idea that we could go back to individuals that are very underrepresented, who didn't get the chance to really spread their, their unique uh, uh, ancestry. And one of those individuals was identified, stud book number 615, a male named Kuporovich, who was born in 1975, lived into about 1997, 98. He had a few offspring, but not very many. Um, there's a lot of cultural and a uh, lot of story behind that. But the, his cells had been frozen down in 1980. And it turns out there's lots of Shavalsky's horses frozen down that could be brought back. This program could be really completely altered by going back into the past, which we plan to keep doing. But we needed to do you know, the first one and this male was deemed that he could possibly be the most valuable genetic male in the North American zoo population, if not the world. Um, and because Shavalsky's horses are not a U.S. species, and because they're under the zoo system here, cloning one doesn't require any kind of government permissions. Um, if we were to release a Shavalsky's horse from an American zoo into Mongolia, that's going to require a lot of, of bureaucratic levels to go through for good reason. But yeah. in, the, in the United States, foreign species are not subject to Fish and Wildlife Service regulation. So that project was able to kind of move at light speed. And in August, on August 6th, 2020, the world's first Shavalsky's horse clone was born. His name was Kurt after Kurt Benersky of the, the San Diego Frozen Zoo. And he is actually the world's first genetic rescue clone ever born. But for me, it's it's tough that, you know, like he's first, but 
Elizabeth Ann, her program is it, that's the she you know they were yeah. first. It's just kind of yeah, weird. Starts, she so yeah. she's number yeah. two, but she really deserves the the title. Um, and so these are two cloning programs that will be doing more work. These are not just one offs, but these were programs to really show the world that you can one reach back in time, get genetic diversity back that's been lost, that it's viable. It's not something that's that you have to keep waiting for more research, that you can actually do this now. And it embodies, as I said, that prepared and proactive paradigm where they were prepared. They had these cells frozen down decades ago. And it was just kind of opportunistically. You know, It's not like back then they were going, oh, we're going to freeze all seven original black-footed ferret founders. We're going to do this. It was, it was, you know, Willa died and they had her body there and they go, you know, let's cut a piece off and send it to the frozen zoo. Like that was complete luck that we were able to clone an eighth founder for this species. Um, it's luck that we will eventually be able to clone a ninth founder for this species. Um, so, so the idea of moving forward, I think from these is really the, the, the game changer is trying to get people to think, and I'm saying, I just realized I'm saying these same like catchphrases over and over again. <laughs> um, you should, you should edit in, more diversity into your podcast um, <laughs> is that from this point forward, we have shown that we need to be going out and freezing down cell samples of everything, every endangered species, common species, not just mm -hmm. a couple samples from each, like it's Noah's Ark, but no, get every single one. Like we could have samples of every living condor, every living kakapo, every living black-footed ferret. We could have a thousand gravy zebras frozen down. We could have diversity that we have today, coral reefs, you know, from all over the world frozen down for later use. And rather than waiting to use those resources until it's so late that it's, it's, it's in crisis mode, we could be using them periodically when it's most strategic and advantageous. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I just, I feel like this is, this is the moment that all the theoretical talk about biotechnology's promise for conservation materialized into reality. And it, and it doesn't help, you know, hurt that it wasn't an adorable way with a cute foal yeah. and a beautiful little black-footed ferret. And the fact that the world fell in love with these projects and fell in love with these animals was, overwhelmingly emotional for me and and the people that have worked in this space um for Oliver Ryder who was there in 1988 freezing down those cells to see his work from 33 years ago become a beautiful animal and see the world rejoice about it i mean i mean it's it's been it's been hugely hugely uh privileged and an honor to be in 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 this role and see it happen this way and so you know, coming back to the idea of Jurassic Park, because yeah, there were Jurassic Park memes made about the black-footed ferret. I'd say like right now, none of those even bother me. They just roll right off from the <laughs> fact that, from the fact that one, like, you know, we've done something. We've done what we said we would do, right? We're going, we're going towards woolly mammoths, but on the mm -hmm. way were steps that could help species now. And we've done it. We're going to keep doing it. We're going to keep making more progress next steps for black-footed ferrets is coming up with a genetic solution for plague so that not only will they have better genetic diversity but they will be able to fight disease in the wild and become self-sustaining 
We plan on going into museum specimens and sequencing their DNA and capturing genetics that have been lost from the from that population and gene editing that back in. We are going to be oh, yeah. doing things with the black-footed ferret that the world will see and from de- and centuries from now will go. This was the dawn of a new wave of conservation that helped save the world from the biodiversity crisis because it's not just about extinctions; it's about the alleles. It's about diversity. Yeah, And I'll get up on my soapbox on a tangent now in the fact that <clears throat> diversity itself, the reason I, I'm so adamant and passionate about the idea of these genetic tools and conservation is that if we can't support and uplift the value of diversity in nature, how are we ever going to hope to become better as a society when we confront the same issues on a cultural level? and on on just a very humanistic level. What I love about woolly mammoth de-extinction is human beings 30,000 years ago painted woolly mammoths on caves. And that was part of our cultural awakening when the human brain went, we can do something abstract and have it mean a story, have it mean a thought that two human beings could sit and watch the sunset and communicate to each other something on an emotional level that no species had ever been able to do before. And the woolly mammoth was part of that, that these species that we've lost are part of something deeply intertwined into our, you know, without waxing spiritually, but <laughs> into our DNA. Yeah. And that we're at a precipice where we can actually start doing things to give legacy back to the things we've lost um, is is immensely emotional and immensely powerful. And I and I do hope people can move beyond the meme of Jurassic Park and and beyond the historic misconceptions of of baselines in nature and move beyond their preconceptions about messing with nature because the reality is is that conservation has been intervening and and gardening and working to save species and habitats for over 120 years now and we have saved so much life on this planet because of it that we wouldn't have today we don't even celebrate these successes because they're so old here in the eastern u.s we have white-tailed deer everywhere and in the year 1900, white-tailed deer were on the verge of extinction in this area. Wild turkey were an endangered bird in the year 1930, and today are in all 48 contiguous states because people relocated them, did conservation work. You know, we think of conservation as only going back to the Endangered Species Act in 1973, but it goes all the way back to the 1800s. The extinction of the passenger pigeon was really the corner, the the turning point that inspired modern conservation. And now just like bringing back woolly mammoths is a part of this deep thousands, thousands year old cultural phenomenon in human beings. The idea that we could bring back passenger pigeons into a landscape and, and do something incredible for the environment with it with the birds whose loss inspired the reason we even have this environment saved at all, that that species could play a part in, in saving an environment twice and setting off a new movement twice. All of that are the, you know, the, the very, very um, deep-seated principles 
I mean, things that form the principles in me for doing this type of work. And I hope everyone else can see that. And I bring up Passenger Pigeon because, of course, cloning the black-footed ferret is, is our first big achievement. And sadly, it's the kind of thing we cannot yet do for birds. Hmm. Um, so working with endangered birds requires completely new um, innovations from, from transferring from agriculture over. And that's our next big push. A lot of people have been asking what's next after Elizabeth and the ferret. What's next for, for us, it's, it's birds. It's not just passenger pigeons or heath hens and extinct birds. It's, it's just trying to develop the tools that, like I talked about with the advanced coral toolkit, that we need a lot of things to be able to actually start doing things with corals. We need a similar set of tools to start even doing things with birds to be able to help birds like Hawaiian honey creepers overcome uh, susceptibility to malaria, to help uh, endangered birds overcome their genetic diversity issues, to be able to biobank and save for later, uh, or help species, you know, help species by actually controlling invasive birds like all those things are things we cannot do right now because we need a reproductive technology to work with birds and our big fundraising push will be for that this year and you know uh i'm just you know i've been doing it on every podcast every interview if five million people donated one dollar to us we would be able to literally crack that egg with birds you know we'd be able to make uh, the innovations we need to with we've got we've already got partners lined up from around the country and the world that can tackle these issues experts in biotech and avian science we need the funding to be able to work with multiple species of birds to actually get these tools going and of course if people are in you know interested in supporting black-footed ferrets and more Shavalsky's horses and more projects where that can go all of our work to date has been funded by by donations from everyday people. We do get some large money in every once in a while from a trust or or another foundation. Our our big big chunk of what we do with black-footed ferrets is actually funded by the company Promega. Um, but it's it's literally everyday people that are just nature lovers and science nerds, you know, techie interested aficionados that send us 10, 20, 50 dollars and that's what keeps our lights going and actually lets us bring something like Elizabeth Ann into the world. What is the possibility of somehow generating new uh uh gene pool uh building an expanded gene pool with just gene editing? Is that a possibility at all? Oh yeah. Yeah, I mean, it is something we will start exploring um, within the year, if not 2022, uh, uh, 2022 for sure, certain. There are people that have been scaling up gene editing uh, ever since its invention in 2012. You know, it used to be like, oh, we edited one gene here, one base pair here. But, but you know, George Church's yeah. lab has been doing hundreds to thousands of gene edits at the same time. There's now people doing large edits to huge regions of the genome up to 100 to 150,000 base pairs. So, you know, with gene editing, we're not at a point yet where we would be able to do, you know, you know, it would be amazing to be able to take a black-footed ferret that had lived in 1894 in Arizona before that population went extinct and clone it. You know, you get the entire genome back, all of its diversity back when you clone from living cells. 
Well, we're not at a point yet where we could actually get an entire genome's worth of diversity back through gene editing, but we could get strategic chunks of those genomes back where it helps boost the diversity mm. of their immune system, of of you know of their 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 adaptability to drier climate, things like that, things that have been lost in these old populations mm. that aren't there anymore. And so, you know, we can definitely start increasing the the adaptive genetic pool, gene pool of this species um, significantly. Uh, and that technology exists right now. And, and especially because we cloned Elizabeth Ann, you know, cloning is, it doesn't matter how much you do in a Petri dish with cells, right? Uh, George Church already has Asian elephant cells that have over 40 mammoth mutations in them. But you have to take those gene-edited cells and wow. make a living organism, like we could do it right now. Like if we wanted yeah. to, we could take a fibroblast cell line of a bandtail pigeon and we could start making thousands of gene edits for passenger pigeons. And we could create a cell line that is largely passenger pigeon, but there's no technology to take those cells and create a living bird. We, you absolutely need the reproductive mm. technology. That's the, that's the, the bottleneck of this and cloning a black footed ferret is the foundation that says once we discover an antibody gene or an allele that gives resistance to plague, once we sequence some genomes from some ancient black-footed ferrets and identify some MHC2 class alleles that are missing, that we can put those back into the population. And, and so we will be doing all of that in the next decade. That's so rad. How far off do you think is the possibility of... Uh, coding a dinosaur proxy with <laughs> genetic information how far off do you think we are from that? uh jack's chickenosaurus um in truth if some crazy well that would be a little different because yeah. that's like turning off genes and getting back to, you know working back and i guess that that works as building a blueprint for like what those look like but in terms of actually just reconstructing something with 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 <laughs> just the code like well, so the problem is, of How course, is that we'll is never that? have a dinosaur, Mesozoic dinosaur code. Um, right, which is the, then the advantage of finding the the the, the link. The second, the, yeah, the second problem, of course, is is that uh, we are probably decades to centuries away from understanding genomes and how they work enough to go, okay, we want this tail, we want this snout, we want yeah. this bit of scale and color like to be able to custom edit an organism to look like anything we want it to we are a long way away from that a very long way away from that um but the chickenosaurus idea is absolutely a reality now um it's it's something that if someone really wanted to put in the funding could probably be done in three years start to finish um people have discovered uh, what genes to turn on to create a snout rather than a beak. They've figured out what you can do to get teeth growing, yeah. what you can do to keep the hand from, from morphing into the, the allula. Um, Fuse. Yeah. The, what, you know, the issue has been the, the spine, tail. Right? the tail. Oh no. The, the team published a paper that got a, an emu's tail to grow longer um they've got a dinosaurian ankle in one paper when did that happen oh this stuff has been going on for about 10 years um it, it, literally some different team around the world has published a dinosaurian trait 
in a chicken or an emu embryo for the last 10 years. And if you just put all of it together in one bird, you'd have your chickenosaurus. And it's, it's, I guess the one, the, the, the fact that we don't have a chickenosaurus right now is actually quite comforting to me knowing that there's no one, no one going, yeah, let's spend a few million dollars doing that just because giving we money can. to that when, yeah, when totally. they could possibly, you yeah. know, divert it into yeah. a conservation effort instead. But no, we're at a technological point that to make a little dinosaur lookalike out of a chicken is completely plausible and doable. And, uh, and maybe they would make interesting pets, you know, if that's, if that's something people really want, but, um, because there really wouldn't be much of an animal welfare issue there for them to be companion animals, but there's nowhere in the wild for a weird looking little dinosaur thing. That's, that's the thing is when I think about the future of custom made no. designer animals, I actually, I, I was, I was challenged with this when I wrote the animal welfare chapter, the editor actually asked me to confront the Jurassic park problem. And my original take was there is no ethical grounds for this. And then I, as I actually worked through it in my mind, I was like, well, no, there is, there's no ethical grounds for creating something like a dinosaur or a Permian reptile or a a Ligocene mammal or bird in today's wild environments. We can go back to the Pleistocene. Like I said, everything alive today was co-evolved and lived in the Pleistocene. That is a blink in time Mm -hmm. for, for evolution and ecosystems. But you go back several million years and those species are they're completely alien now to anything alive today they don't have a place in today's conservation or nature space but we as human beings have companion animals which are unlike anything in the wild which we have manipulated through breeding (laughs) into being things that are arguably more of a welfare concern than anything gene editing would do. Um, actually, Absolutely. are Pugs. so <laughs> French bulldog. Exactly. Yeah. So, if you think about the idea that we would want to create custom companion animals, we already do that and have been doing that for ten thousand years. So, I there's really not much of an ethical argument against a chickenosaurus if its place in the world is just being a child's loved play pet because. My uncle had pet chickens growing up. Pet birds can be very loving animals. A chickenosaurus would be the same thing. And, you know, the cool thing about it is, is even if it was only a chicken that had a long tail and simpler feathers and a snout, that's basically what most of the dinosaurs being discovered in China are anyway. So so it's not like it's <laughs> yeah. so foreign. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, getting to something like a Cetacosaurus or you know, a Therizinosaurus, you know, something that's crazy, crazy different. Like that will require complete ability to just edit whatever organism we want. And we are a long ways away from that. We do not understand genomes enough for that. We do not have the reproductive means for things like that. Um, You know, we're, you know, it would actually probably be easier to make a chickenosaurus right now than it would be to make a passenger pigeon. That's, that's how much more knowledge has gone into studying the evolution discipline of yeah. this than than in functional genomics as a whole um so you know once again like wow for all you supporters out there donate and make our bird projects possible before some russian oligarch makes dinosaurs <laughs> um it's only a matter of time i feel um 
thank you so much for all of your your time and 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 your enormous wealth of information. It, it, it's been wonderful to speak to you about all. Well, these. thank you. It's you know it's it's I like doing these podcasts where it's just a conversation because you know it's it's. I don't know who out there is actually going to care to sit through an hour and a half to two hours of us, of me just talking on my soapbox, but it's a nice chance to get to actually just communicate all the, the vast depth of this, the subject material that we're dealing with. And, and uh, yeah, it's, it's also nice to actually get to communicate a little out there that while I'm the passenger pigeon guy, you know, in the news, there's a lot more to the, the dynamic of what we're doing at Revive and Restore and what we're doing from a personal place in our hearts too right so i mean it's you know this is yeah so this is just a it's a great honor to get to talk about that and i just i was thrilled when i got the invite to be able to talk about jurassic park um so thanks a bunch Congratulations, you made it. Welcome to the end of this episode of the Neo Jurassic Podcast, our longest yet. I truly hope you've enjoyed the show. And again, if you have, please leave the show a glowing review on Apple Podcasts now. And um, I'm really looking forward to sharing this next episode with y'all. It's going to be a really fun, vaguely psychedelic exploration into the many philosophies and ideas that make up the techno-eco-paleo fabric of the Jurassic franchise. But until then... Bye.